Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom, and we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, for their support of Myeloma Crowded Radio and this program. Now, before we get started with today's show, I'd like to share an update on a new program that we have called the Myeloma Coach. Um, if you are newly diagnosed or are looking for others who have traveled the same myeloma journey that you have, I highly recommend that you use this program, the Coach Program. We have over 95 myeloma coaches who are willing to help you on your myeloma journey. They can connect you with many types of resources for myeloma patients, including help with the Health Tree online tool. And this is a program where you can find one or more coaches to help answer questions you might have, like what can I expect during a stem cell transplant, or what to expect on certain treatments, or how to join a clinical trial, or even how to navigate the emotional aspects of having myeloma. You can use one or more coaches. Uh, You can have a short or long-term relationship with them. And you can find a coach on myelomacoach.org. There are many coaches just waiting to help you, so I strongly encourage you to find a coach today if you're looking for help. Uh, These coaches are myeloma caregivers themselves, and they're anxious to help others on this really difficult road with multiple myeloma. Now, on to today's show. As you know, the average age of diagnosis for multiple myeloma is 69. So as you might expect, there are many patients who are elderly or more frail than the general population. Um, Dr. Tanya Wilds of the Seitman Cancer Center at Washington University joins us today to discuss specific issues for an older or more frail patient. So, Dr. Wilds, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, let me introduce you before we get started. Um, Dr. Tanya Wilds is a myeloma specialist at the Seitman Cancer Center and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Washington University School of Medicine. She's on the Seitman Cancer Center Protocol Review and Monitoring Committee in the Behavioral Science Section. She's a member of both ASH and ASCO and additionally the International Society of Geriatric Oncology the American Geriatric Society, and the Cancer and Aging Research Group. She's chair of the International Society of Geriatric Oncology Science and Educational Committee. She's also a member of the National Comprehensive Cancer Center Senior Adult Oncology Panel and Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology on the Multiple Myeloma Committee. And she is associate editor of the Journal of Geriatric Oncology. Her awards include the Aileen and Meyer Kaplow Award for Excellence in Geriatrics, from the Barnes Jewish Hospital Foundation, and is also um, one of the best doctor, on the best doctors list in St. Louis Magazine from 2015 to the present. Um, she's also considered in, in the top 10 faculty and patient satisfaction at Washington University School of Medicine. So, Dr. Wiles, we are so excited that you are joining our program today. Well, thanks again for the opportunity. It's my pleasure. 
So um, just as an interest, how did you come to specialize in um, elderly or geriatric care in general and then in myeloma specifically? Great question. It was it was a tri- triangulation of a few things that, that led me there. First, when we complete our internal medicine residency, we do rotate through geriatrics. And I remember really enjoying uh, working with that population and, and learning how to assess an older person through a slightly different lens than the traditional medical model of looking at each individual organ system, um, but really rather looking at the whole individual and how all those complex health issues are woven together. Um, And even though I enjoyed that rotation, I um, knew I was committed to a career in hematology and oncology. But then as I was moving towards my hematology oncology fellowship, I was looking for a research project. And one of my mentors, Steve Devine, um, who is uh, a bone marrow transplant physician, um, suggested that I study transplant for lymphoma in older patients. And he said quite curtly, it seems like older patients do bad. Um, you should study that. And so I started looking at the outcomes in our older patients versus younger, and he had tossed in, well, look at comorbidities, meaning the other medical issues the patient has in addition to their cancer. And lo and behold, what we found was that it was not the patient's age that impacted uh, the outcomes of transplant in the population, but whether they had other medical conditions. So that really got me thinking, well, what other aspects of a person's health impact how their cancer treatment goes? And then that brings us forward to um, during my hematology fellowship. Um, Again, I was treating lymphoma at that point under the guidance of one of my attending physicians. And I was about to see an 86-year-old woman with a very aggressive lymphoma. And um, by her scans, I was sure that based on the location of her tumor, she would be paralyzed. And so I walked in and, Mm. and rather condescendingly said, you know, honey, can you pick your leg up? Can you move your leg at all? And she kicked her leg off the bed with... Um, with leg strength that I don't know that I had. And she, you know, at 86, had very few other medical issues. She was living independently. She was still running a farm. And she tolerated treatment for that disease that I had seen patients 30 years younger than her have serious toxicity from. And so at some point, just all of those uh, different threads wove together in my mind, and I said, this is where I'm going to make my career. I'm going to use the tools of a geriatrician and apply them in the care of older adults. Um, Then fast forward to my early uh, faculty career when I got interested in multiple myeloma. And um, with all the amazing advances, seeing how it's turning into a chronic condition um, where the, uh, the other medical issues, the patient's overall fitness, um, play such an important component in kind of balancing uh, the side effects and, and considering our approach to treatment. Um, and especially as the, the models of care became more and more aggressive, um, and uh, we'll talk about, I think, later about different um, approaches, whether it's a doublet or a triplet, um, and how that, how we would we pick for an older patient? What was it, their risk of vulnerability to toxicities and that sort of thing? Well, I think you bring up a really, really important point that I want you to expand on a little bit because... It's not age, it's fitness status. And you're right. I mean, the longer now that patients are living, um, the more you have to think about these other issues because you are on treatment long-term typically. And um, sometimes it's just what the other side effects might be or, you know, like longer-term, yeah, just longer-term issues. So can you explain in general how a myeloma specialist might tailor treatment for somebody who's either um, 
And when I say older, I don't mean like highly fit, <laughs> you know, like you're saying, because yeah. I've had some of the doctors say, you know, I can have a 50-year-old walk into my office with congestive heart failure, and I'm going to treat them a lot differently than I'm going to treat the 75-year-old who's walking every day or, you know, still running marathons or something. So can you just talk about how and why myeloma specialists do that? Or yeah, why I care? absolutely. Yeah. Um, first point would be just like you said, it's really not age. Um, one of the first questions I'm often asked when I say that I'm a geriatric oncologist is, well, what age is elderly? Um, and I think that my plan is to spend my whole career pushing back on the notion that we could ever draw a line based on an age. Age is is just, um, as one of my colleagues said, it's the number of times we've traveled around the sun. And to think that that predicts or should tell us how, uh, which treatment we should use um, is really doing a disservice to that that individuality that you you described and captured here. Um, when we use age, we're just using that as a marker for these aging-associated vulnerabilities, which tend to, on average, accumulate over time. But just like you've said, you can have a patient who's below what would be a traditional age cutoff of 65 or 70 um, and have significant comorbid uh, medical conditions that will impact their ability to tolerate different treatments and approaches. And you may have a person who chronologically is much older, but physiologically is is very fit um, that they're going to have resilience to these side effects. So if a myeloma specialist um, is taking into account these vulnerabilities, the rationale behind wanting to tailor our treatment is to uh, to make sure we're hitting the sweet spot of using the uh, the treatment that is the the most effective, but uh, but at a crossroads with um, at, at a level of of anticipated toxicity that's acceptable. Um, and at, we do know that with increasing aging associated vulnerabilities, that a, an older patient will be at greater risk for toxicities, and um, that not only may they be at greater risk for uh, more severe toxicities, but also a, a, a side effect that it is at a, a level that would be tolerable for a younger patient may not be as tolerable for an older patient. And let me explain what I mean. Uh, peripheral neuropathy is one of the um, most common side effects of bortezomib or Velcade. And in a younger patient who has a lot of physiologic reserve, a grade two peripheral neuropathy, which is just the amount of neuro uh, enough neuropathy that it's there all the time um, and maybe kind of uh, you know impacting day to day. If they have that physiologic resilience, they're still going to be able to do their day to day life. Whereas an older patient who may also um, they may have that grade two neuropathy, but then they also have some muscle weakness um, or they may have some slightly low blood pressure when they stand up. That that grade same grade to neuropathy may increase the older patient's risk for falls, for example. Um, and so to, a combination of those things, wanting to uh, decrease the, the total severity of the side effects and then be attentive to the impact of what typically would be considered a more moderate side effect, maybe actually greater in an older patient. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you explained it like that. I had a doctor at one of our recent roundtables, just joke that 80 is the new 60. So, and, and maybe that's maybe that's the case for certain patients. Um, let me ask you this. Let me go backwards a little bit and and ask why is the older population more likely to get myeloma? We didn't really even address that. 
but it's it's a disease that you know has an average age of I think it's what is it 69 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it depends on exactly which population we're estimating from. Um, uh, 69 is what we usually see in the SEER Medicare, or I'm sorry, the SEER data. Um, some populations it's as old as uh, 71, but yes, right around there is, is the most common age. And I don't think we know the whole story. Um, as a whole, most cancers increase in prevalence across the lifespan, and that's probably a combination of things. One, they're, they're, we know there's genetic changes in the cells that become the cancerous cells, and those tend to accumulate over the lifespan. But what's interesting and tells us that that doesn't explain the whole story in patients with myeloma is that when we look at the individual chromosome abnormalities across the lifespan, uh, or I should mm-hmm. say across patients with myeloma who are diagnosed with myeloma, with um, across patients, across, I'm sorry, let me start that again, across different age groups who are diagnosed with myeloma, the percentage that have those chromosome changes tends to be a pretty similar across the age. And in fact, even translocation 414 decreases in prevalence um, in the oldest subgroup. So we know it's not just accumulation really? of genetic changes. Um, and hmm. there is um, there's likely an, a, a, what we call a seed and soil interaction, meaning that um, when those malignant cells develop in an older patient, it may be that the surrounding environment is more permissive to the myeloma kind of taking root, so to, so to speak. There's a phenomenon of aging that uh, that occurs. Uh, there's a, a um, an inflammation that increases across age, and it, they call it inflammaging, where there's increasing uh, inflammatory cytokines present within the body as we age. Um, so that's another potential hypothesis about what uh, it is that about aging that increases the prevalence of myeloma with age. And additionally, when you're talking about the the seed-soil interaction, you're thinking about what's happening in the bone marrow microenvironment or the ability of your immune system to just kind of keep it down and not allow it to grow, whether there's, you know, one or a million cells in your bone marrow. Um, Have you, and I know a lot of work is being done right now in myeloma to kind of create an immune system panel, um, like what factors are we looking at here? You know, like when you say an older patient might have a more weak immune system as well. Like what does that mean? What what things are you looking at to and and does that impact myeloma as you see it as you're working with this older population? I don't think any of these um, approaches are ready for clinical prime time at all. They're they're mm-hmm. still at the um, the research level. Um, and among yeah. the factors that you pointed out, one would be um, these inflammatory chemicals called cytokines. Um, for mm-hmm. example, interleukin-6 is a well-known um, anti, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, in- inflammatory cytokine that has direct pro-myeloma effects. And in fact, back in the 80s, I remember digging up uh, um, papers from Dr. Anderson where he was looking at IL-6 in, in myeloma. And really interestingly, if you look at the straight geriatrics literature, IL-6 is called the aging cytokine. Um, it increases in, oh. um, with age. So um, kind of a natural product of the aging process results in increase in a cytokine that has direct pro-myeloma effects. Um, and then, as you pointed out, there's changes in the the immune system related to the the, um, the body's lymphocytes, kind of some of the, the natural anti-cancer cells that are present in the body. 
Um, and those uh, changes certainly are, um, it's an attractive hypothesis that those are involved, um, that as those immune changes are happening, that they're um, not as active at recognizing and, and uh, controlling the myeloma. Um, but again, that's, that's really at the hypothesis and early laboratory testing, nothing ready for clinical prime time, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And when you're studying these cytokines and you're looking at these inflammatory markers, are you looking at them in the blood or are you looking at them in the bone marrow and is there a difference? Oh, wonderful question. Um, very, very early on that. You know, um, I, I have uh, data waiting for me to look at. And uh, actually, because that area is not my expertise, this is one of these areas where we need the crosstalk between people like myself who really think clinically and then people who think about the laboratory medicine. And actually, um, kind of hot off the presses in the next month or so, I'm going to be trying to d develop some more of those collaborations um, uh, to to uh, speak with people who think like laboratory scientists about the mechanism of each of these cytokines. In answer to your question, we have done, we have just the smallest amount of data, and I'm not sure if others um, have looked at it as well. We do see some differences in the levels of those um, inflammatory markers in blood versus bone marrow, and so that'll be something important for us to keep in mind as we move forward. If a study does not find a relationship with the blood levels, we should think about, well, is the local bone marrow level of that cytokine different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. I think this whole area is just like a huge area, and that's so interesting that IL-6 is the aging yeah. inflammatory marker. I think that's just so fascinating because it is related to IL-17, and now we're working with, um, on this study that we talked about in prior shows about um, to, to look at that. So that's so interesting. Well, oh, and how fabulous about, that these conversations uh, no, give us these insights, right? I know. <laughs> I know. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. Um, let's talk a little bit about different therapies or th therapy approaches, I guess, when you referred to a little bit earlier in the show when you were talking about maybe triple combinations or double combinations. So maybe you just want to give us an overview of, in general, what do you adjust when you're treating a myeloma patient who might have additional health-related issues, um, you know, especially in the elderly population? Yeah, um, there are um, currently some guidelines that are available, and basically they're currently expert opinion. Just um, you know, saying let's let's try and hone in to um, to personalize these these treatments. Um, and we don't yet have the whole right formula for which patients exactly need adjustment to which treatments. Um, but um, some previously published guidelines um, can guide us in that way. As I kind of think through each drug and what what indication we have for dose reduction, um, some of them are are uh, really easy, low-hanging fruit. Like, for example, lenalidomide has very clear um, indications for dose reduction based on renal impairment. Those are in the package insert, so, um, so all physicians will be aware of those. Um, but further from there, um, we uh, uh, commonly see published recommendations to dose reduce lenalidomide to 15 mill milligrams, even without reduction in renal function a priori, just to improve tolerability. Um, so we'll, I'll commonly do that in a patient who's over their mid-70s and maybe a little bit more vulnerable. Um, I should mention, I, haven't, I have not yet mentioned uh, you know, how do we categorize these patients beyond the, the eyeball test? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, and it's still evolving. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the uh, most widely cited ways right now is the International Myeloma Working Group Frailty Index, which is a relatively simplified approach using basically just patient age 
and uh, what we call the functional status. So in geriatrics, we dive into the patient's daily function in a little bit different way than a, a typical oncologist would. An oncologist will use a measure called performance status, uh, either mm-hmm. the ECOG scale, which is just zero to five. Zero is perfect, no impact of their disease on their daily function. Five is actually no longer with us, deceased, so that's not a number that's helpful in, <laughs> in um, mm-hmm. you know, talking about right. a patient's fun- function. So you can see that's a pretty crude tool. Most patients fall as a one or a two. One means they have some symptoms, um, but otherwise really able to do normal day-to-day life. An ECOG performance status of two is up and about more than half the day, but maybe need to rest some. Three is in uh, resting more than half the day. So you can see a very crude tool. The in- mm-hmm. IWG frailty index uses what we call functional status, so that's more of a tool of a geriatrician that's divided into activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living. The activities of daily living are those things one needs to be able to do to stay independent in the home. One needs to be able to bathe themselves, dress, make uh, toilet, feed themselves, and so forth. The instrumental activities of daily living, the IADLs, are those activities someone needs to be able to do to maintain their independence within a community. So those include using the telephone, managing their finances, uh, grocery shopping, meal preparation, handling their own medications, arranging transportation, and so forth. And we know that it, with each uh, one of those activities that a person needs assistance with, um, that kind of is an indication of an underlying aging-associated vulnerability. So the IMWG incorporates age, those functional status uh, measures that I mentioned, and then comorbidities, meaning the other medical issues that a person has. And using that scale, patients are categorized as either fit, intermediate, fit, or frail. So then when we apply those to dose reductions on the uh, the drug, so I was was talking about lenalidomide, so if a patient is intermediate or frail, we would likely uh, start with a uh, lower dose of the lenalidomide. Um, Other uh, considerations when thinking about adjusting the dose of the different drugs are, number one, are we using them in, in combination with the um, increasing number of drugs put together, uh, overall there will be an increasing risk of side effects as we use more drugs together, a triplet over a doublet and so forth, although I'll put an asterisk on that and say with our, uh, you know, the newest uh, combination regimens, adding in very well-tolerated treatments like daratumumab, that that uh, mantra that more drugs means more toxicity has, has started to fall apart, so to speak. So other drugs that I, I particularly am uh, um, have an aging-associated lens when I think about my dosing on them are bortezomib. So as we talked about earlier, the peripheral neuropathy is, is of comp- particular importance in, in older adults. Ways we can decrease the likelihood of that include using, number one, subcutaneous formulation. Um, I, I, I don't know of any indication anymore for intravenous formulation because it so in- significantly increases mm-hmm. The, right. um, the peripheral neuropathy burden, um, and it's been shown to be equivalent uh, in efficacy. So sub-Q, uh, meaning the injection under the skin, um, absolutely. And then once weekly as opposed to twice weekly. Um, Palumbo did work mm-hmm. uh, coming up on 10 years ago where uh, they were using a combination of bortezomib, melphalan, prednisone, and thalidomide, and they found very quickly that when they were using the bortezomib twice weekly that the rates of peripheral neuropathy were just way too high. They had to stop the drug, and basically the patient didn't get as, um, you know, as optimal treatment as possible because of this, uh, that significant side effect. They actually did an amendment after the first 100 or so patients and switched over to uh, once weekly subcutaneous um, bortezomib, 
and found that uh, they basically dramatically reduced the rates of that peripheral neuropathy, that nerve damage from the chemotherapy. And so that's going to be a much better tolerated treatment approach for our older patients, allowing them to um, remain on the drug longer than they would be uh, they would if we used the more aggressive twice weekly formulation. I think steroids, uh, the corticosteroids, are another uh, um, underappreciated source of significant morbidity in our older patients. Um, right. For a number of yeah. <laughs> my patients. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the the high blood sugars in a patient who has diabetes or in a patient who was previously pre-diabetic or or wasn't um, didn't even know they were pre-diabetic, we can precipitate diabetes, which is you know a life-changing complication to need to mm-hmm. then be thinking about one more thing, monitoring blood sugars and so forth. Um, in patients who have underlying cognitive changes, it may precipitate uh, delirium, um, which is um, kind of acute changes. And, and memory confusion, um, an acute confusional state is another uh, name for that. Um, and so in the patients who are intermediate, fit, or frail, we're certainly going to want to look at uh, reducing, uh, minimizing the doses of the corticosteroids of the, the dexamethasone or prednisone um, in those patients. So I'll okay. pause for just a oh, second. No, I didn't know if I'm we wanted notes. to talk about more drugs. <laughs> <No>. or <laughs> No, so, I mean, what you referred to earlier, too, so these are some, some of the specific drugs. So these are great tips. Yeah. So you can reduce the Revlimid dose. You can definitely do sub-Q Velcade and do it once weekly versus twice weekly. You can reduce your steroid doses. And then, you know, you can also look at, I, I know a lot of the doctors are talking about, uh, well, for induction you should do, think about triplet combinations or maybe quad combinations. And you kind of mentioned like adding a monoclonal antibody like a daratumumab or something like that might not give you more toxicity. But for this um, elderly or more frail patient population, do you use three triplet combinations when you start somebody on treatment right off the bat um, and then dose reduce? Or do you just start with like a doublet instead? Or how do you make that decision about what you do? Because to me, this says you need to ask your doctor if you need to adjust therapy during the course of your care and not be afraid to do that um, if you're seeing different side effects. that, And you need to share those with your doctors so that the doctor can help you adjust accordingly as, as needed. Yes, yes. I love I love that point. It's such an important one, and I'll, I'll take you on a little aside if you'll indulge me. Um, I had an older patient that I had on vortezomib, and every week I would ask him, have you had any, any numbness or tingling in your fingers or toes, numbness or tingling in your fingers or toes, and he always said no. And then fast mm-hmm. forward four cycles of abortezomib-based initial therapy, and my nurse calls me and says, you know, Mr. Smith has been, he can't stand up. He's fallen three times today. And oh this gosh. was a patient I would have categorized as fit. And I, I said, we have to get him in clinic. I, I, I can't fathom what's going on. Um, you know, is he dehydrated? What, what's going on? So it turns out I had given this poor man grade three peripheral neuropathy because the way I was asking the question, numbness or tingling, was not how he experienced his peripheral neuropathy. He said, oh, my, feet, my feet felt gritty. <laughs> 
And mm-hmm. um, so his experience didn't line up with how I was asking the question. And, you know, I so regret that he, uh, you know, that for whatever barrier I put up, he didn't feel empowered to tell me something is wrong with my feet. So we had powered on with standard dosing of the bortezomib, leading to the point where he was having difficulty walking and even falling recurrently, which is, is um, you know, really um, not the, kind, you know, the, the, the outcome that we would want. Um, so I really want to highlight your, your point of, um, you know, the patient feeling empowered to talk to the doctor. This doesn't, something feels wrong, even if the doctor doesn't specifically ask that, the, the, that way. Right. And I think as a patient, I mean, I did this. I went on for six months with really bad side effects uh, on something, not knowing what was causing it because I was on a combination therapy. And then, you know, finally brought it up to my doctor like six months in just because I'm thinking, well, this is what the treatment is like, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just have to put up with it and suffer through it and finish my treatment or, you know, whatever. But um, in myeloma, you're playing the long game. So you can't really do that in myeloma. Right, and you need yeah, to and back speak up. Yeah, back to your question about then how do you plan that for an older patient? How do you take these um, the long game into account? How do you pick the regimen? Um, and you know, this is this is certainly where some of the art comes in. Um, we can we can lay out that we need to have a triplet in this situation and that and that sort of thing. But um, you know, we're all born as clones. Uh, we age as individuals. And for my different individual patients, there may be different parts of their kind of geriatric uh, profile that make me weight different side effects more heavily than others. Um, so, for example, a patient with a, you know a lot of known underlying cardiac disease, um, we may have greater concerns. Um, about the potential risks of, um, of, of blood clots. Um, or that individual patient may have such a high priority um, or level of concern about an individual toxicity that for them that's, that's, uh, that drug's not an option. Um, and that may not be how I would want to proceed, but that's, you know, my job is to, I tell my patients, I'm, I'm not the captain of the ship, you are. I'm the navigator. I can lay out our map. I can show us our different paths that we can take, but ultimately we need to pick the path that's right for you. So if I have a, uh, you know, I've had patients who had um, uh, TIA, transient ischemic attacks, which are kind of mini strokes, um, after a couple of days on Revlimid, you know, I thought there were likely mm-hmm. other reasons that we could blame other than the Revlimid, but knowing that that was one of the potential side effects of that drug, it was not worth the risk of a stroke to that patient. And he to this day has never had another dose of one of that category of drugs. Um, they're really good drugs. So it kind of, you know, I always have this regret that um, we aren't able to right. use those, but that's that, that patient's priority, that the idea of having a stroke and the, um, the, in, the dependence that that might cause him was not worth that risk for him. Um, and so uh, another approach that we can use is um, one we would, geriatricians would call start low and go slow. I think oncologists, unfortunately, sometimes get tied into, I need to go on record right at the moment of diagnosis with what this patient's treatment is going to be. And I think a geriatrician Mm -hmm. approaches it more from, okay, let's start and see how things go. Um, Let's see what toxicities are like. If one drug or, you know, a doublet is well tolerated, let's see about adding in a third drug. Um, and kind of see how it goes. Um, outside of a clinical trial where it's really uh, protocolized exactly what patients the treatment gets on which day, in, in routine practice we have that flexibility. Um, and so I may start a patient just on, on lenalidomide, and then if we do okay, add uh, the bortezomib or vice versa. Um, more often we can start the bortezomib rapidly, and the uh, lenalidomide takes um, uh, you know, more time to, um, to add in. 
Now here more recently, we have the option of adding in the daratumumab. Um, we have FDA approval for the combination of daratumumab and first-line therapy in older patients um, who are transplant ineligible in the combination with bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. Um, interestingly, that, that's a regimen, uh, the, the bortezomib, melphalan, prednisone backbone is much more widely used mm -hmm. in, um, in Europe and really um, doesn't have as much traction here in the U.S. where it's really the combination of the proteasome inhibitor and the immunomyelogen regulatory agent, Velcade and Revlimid, is um, certainly more favored. Um, so that's not uh, a regimen that I've uh, utilized to all too frequently. Um, and then most rec recently, we now have FDA approval based on the Maya trial for daratumumab with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. Again, I just haven't had the right patient that that's been the right combination for, but it appears to be very effective. And that combination appears to get around um, uh, that old the dogma I've said that more drugs is more toxicity. Really well-tolerated regimen aside from the uh, potential reaction during the very first or first and second infusions, um, and, uh, and and certainly more effectiveness of the combination um, without it, without that cost of uh, of increased toxicity. Um, so, kind of an exciting time. Things are are rapidly rapidly moving. Um, yeah. And and it sounds like I mean those are situations. Both those situations, the Dara Melphalan Prednisone or the Dara Revdex. Those are triplet combinations that you yeah. could successfully use without a lot of extra toxicity. So you are, yeah, I mean, the, the armamentum is growing, yeah. and it sounds like you're going to have a lot of different options. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and lots of opportunities to really individualize things. And I sometimes need to remind myself that the things, that, you know, the, the treatments that I see as relatively low burden from a side effect standpoint, it still may be a significant burden on a patient. Um, you know, I, I've, I've offered patients the, the triplet of uh, Dara with an immunomodulatory agent and a steroid, and the weekly infusions for some patients were not, ex, you know, were not something that was in line with their uh, perception of good quality of life. Um, and 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 as long you know, I always say, as long as I've given you the information to make your choice with, if if they choose just the doublet, that's fine with me. Uh, you know, my they, you know, we need to find the pathway that's right for them. And if weekly trips to the doctor for a 90-minute infusion um, are are too burdensome, I respect that. Mhm. Mm yeah. Well, with Jared, that spaces out over time, right? So that that yeah. might not be yeah. a long-term yeah, exactly. concern, but exactly. yeah, everybody's yeah. different, yeah. right? Right. Right. So, so let's talk about stem cell transplant a little bit because I know sometimes patients think, well, if I'm over 65 or something, I'm not going to even consider a transplant. So mm -hmm. in your opinion, um, how fit do you need to be and what are disqualifying factors or should transplant be considered by everybody? Really great questions, and um, and certainly uh, not well defined uh, in the literature. It, it, it's interesting when you look at the trials that say these patients are either transplant eligible or transplant ineligible. There's actually not a definition of of of, of what that means. Um, it's basically yeah. in the eye of the beholder. Um, the Center for Medicare Services um, that um, provides the um, uh, approval for transplant for patients with myeloma until about 15 years ago actually said it was only approved up till age 78, but I'm very delighted to report that they removed that ageist criteria out of there. And they said basically let's leave it to the doctors and the patients. Um, and they only stipulate that the patient has kind of 
adequate organ function to tolerate it. Um, most in institutions have their own um, uh, guidelines to some degree. So for example, patients before transplant will undergo some breathing tests and there's some certain measurements that may um, uh, demonstrate impaired lung function, which we know that if the patient has impairment in that uh, type of lung function, if they were to develop, uh, say, a pneumonia, they would be at dramatically increased risk of, of, of very mm -hmm. serious side effects of the transplant. Um, so the transplant teams will typically look at that performance status that we talked about earlier, basically how uh, much of the day is the person up and about and um, how active are they in combination with their other medical issues. So um, significantly impaired heart function, uh, lung function um, are probably two of the biggest uh, reasons we would exclude a, a patient from transplant. Basically, if, you know, if, if we were to take the myeloma out of the equation, if their life expectancy um, is limited by those other conditions, um, mm -hmm. then that's when we would uh, not want a patient to go through a transplant transplant because the, we do know the recovery is, um, is substantial and um, so kind of taking away that, uh, you know, putting them at that increased risk of side effects of the transplant, um, you know, without kind of the, the longer game to look at because their, their life expectancy may be limited by these other issues, kind of part of the equation. Now, um, those of us who are interested in geriatrics are really interested to say, can we use our tools of a geriatrician to describe the patients who are considered transplant eligible? So we can define this um, so that we can go beyond just what people like to call the eyeball test um, to, to say that these are, are patients who are considered transplant um, eligible. Um, and uh, I published a study a year ago in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, and then uh, there was another study that was at ASH last year that had very similar findings that uh, – Basically, the, even though the oncologists were probably typically not using these geriatric tools, they were picking up on some of the vulnerabilities that we can uh, categorize using the geriatric assessment. So, for example, um, I'll do a brief walking test called a timed up and go, where a patient will rise from seated, walk 10 feet, and then return to the chair. And we found that the patients mm -hmm. who were considered transplant eligible walked faster than those um, that were considered transplant ineligible. So, slowing mm -hmm. is a well-known component of frailty, and the, the clinicians were picking up on that. Um, it just would be nice to, rather than, you know, using the, um, the, the thumbnail estimation, you know, if we could uh, do that in a more rigorous um, uh, type of way. Uh, they, even though the oncologists were not measuring the daily activities, these instrumental activities of daily living I mentioned earlier, uh, the patients mm -hmm. who had uh, limitations in those were less likely to undergo transplant as well. Um, so uh, I'd love to move beyond the eyeball test to using these uh, geriatrics principles. In the U.S., I would say it's pretty common for up to the age of 70 for patients to be by and large candidates for transplant. Between 70 and 75, as those aging-associated vulnerabilities are starting to um, accumulate, it's, it's, uh, there's a bit more variability in whether a patient would be considered a transplant candidate. Um, but, you know, I, I'll, I'll hear in the myeloma community of people who are approaching 80 or even into their early 80s being considered candidates uh, for transplant. And I think taking into account these aging-associated vulnerabilities um, and what the patient's life expectancy independent of the myeloma is uh, to help guide those decisions rather than any, any of these age cutoffs. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so fascinating. And you mentioned um, breathe, you know, the lung function and the heart function. Is kidney function part of that as well or no? 
Not necessarily. No, no. In fact, even patients who are on dialysis um, are, are commonly considered uh, candidates, barring that they have any of the other significant comorbidities. They do need to have dose reduction in their the dosing of the chemotherapy that's used with the transplant, um, but uh, it's not an exclusion. Really, that's very interesting. Okay, and when we talk about, I, I know there's a debate about um, should people do early transplant versus late transplant, and um, can you speak to that in terms of effectiveness of the therapy, and is there any data on that that shows it is it is or is not more effective in the elderly popula- population? And then just the practical issues, like if you wait too long to get a transplant, maybe it's not an option for you anymore. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So when we have looked at older patients versus younger patients who get transplant and we compare their outcomes, older patients get the same benefit as younger patients. Um, So that's reassuring. When we compare older patients who get transplant to older patients who do not get transplant, even when we can kind of control for all the factors that go into the decision about whether they do or do not get transplant, we still see a substantial benefit uh, to getting uh, to undergoing transplant. So I recommend for all my older patients who are potential candidates that they consider it. The early versus late question is is a wonderful one, and for exactly the reason that you said. I tell my patients we have a lot of cards we can play. The question is, if we wait with you, what is the likelihood that a new medical issue may have come up in the interval that would then take the transplant out of the uh, out of the running as a as a as a possibility. Um, you know, I certainly have had my fair share of patients who, um, you know, they're uh, doing well from the myeloma standpoint, and then lo and behold, they end up having a heart attack or needing a bypass surgery, um, or ending up mm-hmm. with heart damage that would then uh, subsequently make them uh, not a candidate for for transplant, um, and that their um, their greatest likelihood of having the physical resilience that one needs to go through transplant is the younger that they are. Um, and so I encourage them to, to consider it rather than um, uh, in the early setting as opposed to holding, holding that card for a rainy day. And I know some patients are like, oh, I don't want to do transplant. But in, in my opinion, in myeloma, you either get your therapy all at once or you get it over a long period of time or you get it this, you know, so like you're going to get it. <laughs> and um, I don't know. It's, you know, if transplant can get you out further and you're on lower doses of maintenance therapy versus um, staying on a triplet combination for the same time period, it's, I'm, I don't know, you're down for the count for a few weeks more, but um, I don't know. That's yeah, just t- a personal t- it's so preference. Funny. But, yeah, I think you and I have very similar kind of views on things, and, and I, you know, that's exactly what I'll tell my patients is, you know, that this is just packing, you know, nine months' worth of, of treatment into a very concentrated mm-hmm. um, uh, period, um, and when patients who um, physiologically, I think, are fit for it and they, they describe for me that their goals of care are really about, you know, quality of life and time and family and they they want to have the mobility to go travel and not have to be tied to coming in for treatments, um, you know, those are factors that are going to make, make me really want to make sure that they um, – have an accurate perception of what the transplant period is like, um, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll encourage them to talk to other uh, transplant recipients to hear about what their experience was like, uh, just so that they're making the decision that's that's best for them. Um, you know, because as you said, ongoing um, therapy, you know, 
like you said, daratumumab does decrease in frequency, so there's some flexibility in there. But, um, you know, I have a dear, dear patient who absolutely wants to spend most of his life in his motor home and, um, you know, mm -hmm. traveling and not spending a whole lot of time here in St. Louis, um, which uh, is not really compatible with, um, uh, with whatever schedule of, of injectable type therapy um, for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Well, there are a lot of things to consider as a patient. That's why they patients have to come to you and talk about their preferences too. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Yeah. So in your opinion, uh, what do you think for, a, let's say, a patient comes into your office and they're older or more unfit, um, what would you choose if they're a standard risk and then how would you change that if they were more considered high risk, a high risk mm -hmm. patient? Yeah, I think our um our understanding of this is is rapidly uh shifting um as we're adding the uh monoclonal antibodies into frontline therapy. Some mm -hmm. of the challenges we have with looking at the risk groups is how small those subgroups are within each of the clinical trials and the fact that um it you know that in the, those large trials are designed with what we call power, which is basically how whether the study can answer the question of is this treatment more effective in this subgroup. When you break out a small group of those patients, from the statistics standpoint, our degree of certainty about the benefit of that treatment in that subgroup starts to get a bit more hazy, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. so... Um, as we're uh, you know, incorporating things like DARA plus lenalidomide and dexamethasone into our war chest, um, it starts to get a bit hazier what we do in that higher risk group. So in my standard risk myeloma patients, um, overall, uh, my approach has been the combination of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone in a modified regimen we call RVD light. Now, um, I, I will still occasionally use just lenalidomide and dexamethasone based on patients' individual preference, uh, but based on the overall, if, if effectiveness is the primary concern um, and mm -hmm. they're okay with the, the frequency of, um, of visits, and then I'll, I'll head towards the RVD light. Um, haven't had as many opportunities to incorporate the DARA RD uh, regimen yet, just because we, we got approval for that so recently, um, but uh, mm -hmm. looking forward to kind of adding that into um, the combination. As far as higher risk patients, I think my comfort level based on the available data is highest with um, the RVD light regimen, um, having the prednisone inhibitor and the lenalidomide at this point, um, but we'll be anxious to be seeing more data about um, the DARA-RD combo um, in, uh, um, in that high risk subset um, upcoming. Right. Um, and there is a ton of stuff coming out in clinical trials. Yeah. So when you look at all the development that's being done for myeloma patients, um, and it's just the pipelines are huge, what looks the most interesting to you from when you're looking at it with that lens of geriatric or elderly patients? Yeah, great question. So, um, uh for me, the question that I think needs to be answered 
most rapidly is less about the individual drugs and their side effects as opposed to what approach should we be using. And so the trial that I'm just uh, cannot wait to see results on, but unfortunately I'm going to have to be patient and wait a few years because they just started enrolling this year, is coming out of the United mm. Kingdom, and it's called the uh, fitness trial. I think it's MRC14, um, uh, but the, the, it has an acronym that's a fitness trial, where they're randomizing patients to either the standard approach to dosing antimyeloma therapy or a proactively dose-reduced um, approach based on geriatric assessment. So categorizing the patients as hmm. fit, intermediate, and or, um, I think it may be just intermediate and frail. I apologize. I need to look at the details again. But basically doing what we do in clinical practice but doing it pro, proactive dose reductions as opposed to reacting, waiting until the patients had a significant side effect before reducing that dose. And um, it, it's a combination, I believe, of exazomib and either cyclophosphamide or lenalidomide and dexamethasone. Um, but basically it's just testing the approach of is our standard way the most effective or is this a priori dose reduction based on stratifying the patient based on vulnerability um, the way to go. Um, so, so that's the, the, one of the studies I'm most excited about. Um, I also participate in the Alliance, and very, very shortly we will be opening a trial of the combination um, that includes both the monoclonal antibody, immunomodulatory agent, and proteasome inhibitor. It'll be a combination of DARA, um, lenalidomide and ixazomib in newly diagnosed transplant-ineligible patients. And I think other approaches that are going to be really important, too, are categorizing the patients using these principles of geriatrics. One of the deficits that we have right now is when we look at that trial of patients, even if the average age is over 70, we don't know very much about those patients because we're just categorizing them based on an age range, maybe the performance status, um, and that's about it. We know very little about the spectrum of aging-associated vulnerabilities present in that population. And so if we start to plan from the beginning when we conduct these trials to gather the data about the aging-associated vulnerabilities using these frailty scales, I'm going to be able to look at a trial and say, 60% of the patients in this trial are frail. That's like the patient sitting in front of me. This is data I can apply to this patient. We do know mm -hmm. that the way clinical trials have traditionally been designed tends to discourage or even exclude patients as they age, whether it's the burden of extra treatment visits on the clinical trial or the way the dosing is done that either the patient or the clinician thinks is not appropriate for a more vulnerable patient. Um, and so if we start to design our trials more intentionally, making sure we're, we're characterizing the, the vulnerabilities in the patients and then dosing in a way that is uh, appropriate for these patients, um, I think it's going to give us um, just so much information to to better tailor the treatment to a patient based on their their current health status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and well, that's fascinating, and that will be a good combination to to test that Darevixa. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you look at the new stuff like the CAR T or the mm -hmm. bites or the antibody drug conjugates that are all, uh, many of them seem to be going after the BCMA target, but now other targets are kind of in the works too. When you look at that in the context of this um, older population, what do you think? I mean, if I know CAR-T, like they're trying to figure out, well, why do some patients respond or not respond? And is it the, the age or, you know, the function basically of their immune system? Um, so, 
you know, like how do you how do you look at that? Would do you do you suggest, hey, get on that CAR T clinical trial list for an elderly patient? Or should you consider some of the bites or if they've exhausted these other myeloma therapies? Yeah, great question. Um I, I tend to be a, a late uptaker, meaning I really want to see the data and I want to see the safety in my older patient populations. And so I tend to uh, not jump on bandwagons as early, but even for me, it's been hard not to be excited about all these new approaches. Um, but mm-hmm. I can tell you that, you know, ha- even having CAR-T studies open here at Siteman Cancer Center, um, that those trials are really unattractive to my older patients when I tell them the duration of their hospitalization, um, and some of the toxicities, particularly the neurologic toxicities, are very worrisome to them. Um, and so mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't discourage categorically older patients from considering uh, those those trials, but at least my experience so far has been they haven't been as attractive because those individual patients had prioritized their quality of time over, um, you know, achieving depth of response with their myeloma or, and, and that sort of thing. So I think they're exciting. As we learn more about them, we understand better who's at risk for toxicity, how to manage those toxicities. I look forward to utilizing them more widely in my older patients, but at the moment it hasn't had as much um, uptake, um, you know, as I said, in my case, mainly due to the, the patient's priorities and preferences not being in line with being on those trials at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm curious about the neurotoxicity when you talk about that because did, does that happen more in lymphoma and leukemia than in myeloma? Um, some I think of the, the cytokine the- release or the neurotoxicity, yeah. Yeah, I think it's an evolving story, um, and that may end up being mm-hmm. how it how it plays out. But it, it you know certainly remains on the the potential. Um, considerations. Um, But yeah, I agree. It's an evolving story. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, it'll be so interesting to see what happens with all of that, and uh, specifically for this population, because wouldn't that be great if if they do figure out, you know, how to make those remissions long-term, and you just, you pass away from something else instead of myeloma, that would be great. Yes. Well, not the passing way, but <laughs> right, know. exactly. I know. I what say I'm that saying. same thing, and I feel very strange when I say it. I'm like, okay, that's not exactly mm-hmm. what I mean, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, I, I know. say. I say I all know. doctors' goal is for their patients to pass from a disease that's in someone else's, a different doctor's domain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, it's hard. This life is hard. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering what patients can do to increase their fitness status. Um, to really prepare themselves to be to obtain their best myeloma care regardless of age. Yeah, I think I have two main recommendations for that. First is be ready to be your own advocate. Um, you know, uh, just by virtue of participating in things like this, I can see that um, you know those who are listening are uh, wanting to um, equip themselves uh, to uh, you know really advocate for themselves, obtain the best care that they can. Um, and I think one of the components of that of being that advocacy is, like we talked about earlier, making sure that you're reporting side effects, you know, that aren't acceptable to you, that are not what you expected, or, or you're just not sure if this is what you should expect and what can be done to help mitigate that. Um, I think telling your doctor what is important to you is so important. I think one of my favorite days, I mentioned my Winnebago driving patient. Um, you know, when he came to me, we were, we were doing RVD light, and he said, it is – I can't do this anymore. I I need to I need to travel. I need to roam. 
And we switched mm. um, uh, to uh, Ixazomib so that he could have an all-oral regimen. And when he came back, he looked like a renewed spirit. And he said, I cannot mm-hmm. tell you what it did for me to be able to go back to the life I loved of just traveling this beautiful country. Um, and that never would have happened if he hadn't come to me and said, this is what is important to me, um, and, it, and, and that we could find a creative solution um, that, uh, that met his goal and, um, and help was uh, ideal for his myeloma. The second thing I would recommend is probably not going to be what anyone wants to hear, but I think exercise is such good medicine for our bodies um, for a few reasons. Um, one, um, just helping you maintain that physiologic resilience that, um, you know, there's going to be storms a Along this journey, and whether it's an infection that was unexpected um, or uh, developing peripheral neuropathy, um, exercise is actually one of the only things that's been proven to help improve peripheral chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, that nerve damage um, from prior chemo. Mm. Um, and this is certainly difficult. I don't want to um, to gloss over the fact that the fatigue from treatment is real. Uh, many patients will have had significant decline in their function leading up to their diagnosis. They may have had pain for months, um, and really, uh, by the time they are getting to their diagnosis, um, you know, have lost significant muscle mass as their activities uh, shrank and shrank because they were in so much pain by the time they finally got to the diagnosis. And there may be fear. Um, uh, Jenny, you and I were talking earlier about fear about uh, fractures um, and and that sort of thing. I would encourage patients who have, uh, over the course of their journey, had a very sedentary period, uh, particularly if there were specific um, uh, bone issues, to request consultation with a physical therapist who can really evaluate are there specific muscle areas that are weak and should be targeted. Um, I uh, am, am very interested in falls in older adults, and we do know that if a person who has been very inactive and uh, even having falls goes straight to a walking program, they will actually increase the risk of falls. So they really need to start first with consultation with a physical therapist to work on any sort of muscle imbalances um, that may have developed to, to strengthen those muscles, to work on their balance, and then undertake a, a regular exercise um, program. Um, and as I mentioned, that will give that physiologic, that physical resilience um, for whichever, whatever lies ahead. Mm-hmm. And, well, that's there are a lot in what you just said. So I had two questions about that because, yeah. um, well, we did a show with a physical therapist, and she was saying you can lose muscle mass in just three weeks, you know, like going through a transplant or something like that. So even when you're going through something like that, you don't feel like doing anything. You're just like, why am I so tired? But mm-hmm. um, just moderate exercise can overcome that like a lot faster and so even things doing things in bed or um, just to keep your muscle mass up is really important and then um, I'm just wondering how the cytokines are related to exercise so it'd be interesting to have somebody do a study on like what happens with your IL-6 levels as patients exercise or don't exercise following myeloma treatment that would be really interesting 
Absolutely. You know, you bring up the the exercising around the transplant period. Ten years ago, there was a study, which I think was largely allogeneic stem cell transplant patients um, and tended to be younger patients, but they randomized the patients to kind of usual care or exercise during the transplant period. And what was fascinating is that the patients who exercised had shorter lengths of stay and actually recovered their blood counts faster, which was fascinating to Mm. me Um, because Mm -hmm. getting to exactly your point, that, you know, there was something physiologic going on that allowed them to recover their blood counts faster. So, you know, that's not something that, that that's not a self-reported just feeling more energy or, or something like that. That was, uh, you know, there's, there's something going on at the molecular level there that's uh, really, really interesting. Um, yeah, we'd love to yeah, see how, I, how that plays yeah. out in the myeloma san, uh, setting. Yeah, I wonder why um, we don't get our IL-6 levels. I, I think they are related to other things too beyond the myeloma, but I think that would be an interesting lab to start capturing from myeloma patients to see mm-hmm. if patients have this chronically high chronically high levels for things like that. But yes, I know you don't feel like doing anything <laughs> when you're going through uh-huh. transplant. But I have had friends say, you know, I got on a stationary bike actually while I was still in the hospital going through transplant and just forced myself to do it and they recovered a lot faster even when they had two transplants that could compare. So I think there's definitely something um, physiological about that. Well, I think this is clear that um, it just this show brings to me to the conclusion yet again that as patients we really need to have a myeloma specialist in our corner because to know how to um, treat in such a nuanced way for individual things that might be all over the place for comorbidities or other, you know, medical conditions that patients are dealing with. We really need people like you. So I strongly recommend that people go get a consult with a myeloma specialist. And um, the data keeps coming out over and over again that you live longer if you do because of these very reasons, in my opinion. Um, I want to open it up for caller questions. So if you have a question for Dr. Wilds, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And uh, we have a caller at 310-5598. Go ahead with your question. Perfect. Hi, Dr. Wilds. Um, I just have a really quick question for you. So coming from someone who is a daughter to a parent who has cancer and potentially a grandparent who might have cancer, um, in what ways would you recommend I could be more hands-on or helpful in that process? Because I think there's a lot, um, as a child of someone who has cancer, there's a lot we can do. I just want to make sure um, if you have any recommendations of ways that I could be more hands-on in that process. Wow, great, great question, and I'm sorry that you're going through that. Um, I think the things that immediately come to mind are, number one, take care of yourself um, and, uh, you know, make sure that you're not neglecting your own um, health in in taking care of them. And um, as myself, the adult child of aging parents who uh, can be very set in their ways, I think, um, you know, (laughs) making sure sure that um you know the you, you keep the relationship um Oh yeah, with you know holding on to the the dual goals of helping them maintain their um, 
autonomy, but then encouraging them to maybe look at things with fresh eyes if their approach is um, is one that you really perceive as being suboptimal. I think you're in a great position, too, to possibly be an advocate for them to have um, issues checked out that they may not be very forthcoming with. Um, this is a totally different yeah. direction, but my perception is that many of my older patients, uh, that greatest generation mentality, will deny depression and other psychosocial symptoms that they really could benefit from having addressed. Um, and it's really not till the adult mm-hmm. child comes in in, in, um, in tears saying, Dad, this is not you. You know, you, you used to really enjoy, um, you know, whatever hobby or grandkids or, or what have you. Um, and, uh, you know, it's often yep. that plea from the adult child that, that gets them, you know, willing to say, okay, yeah, this is, this is a, a part of the symptoms I'm dealing with with is um and i need help in this um i I hear way too often no i can just power through this and i say this is a medical condition depression and anxiety are medical conditions um that need to be addressed the same as we would address if you have pain or nausea yeah yeah thank you so much that's very helpful um, it sounds like even exercise might even be encouraging exercise might be really helpful as well, just with how the results of how a patient who is exercising, how helpful it can be. So this is great. Thank you so, so much. Oh, you're most welcome. Okay. Thank you so much. What a great question. Um, so, Dr. Wild, thank you so much for joining us today on Myeloma Crowd Radio. This is a really important topic, and um, it's clear that you are a great expert on this topic. So you are the perfect person to choose uh, to address this. And um, we are excited to see what other research that you're doing um, and what that ends up showing for this patient population because it's the majority, almost the majority of myeloma patients yeah are in this situation. So thank you just so much for joining us today and for sharing your expertise with us. Oh, thank you. It was it was great fun and, and, and a delight. Have a great day, everyone. Okay, thanks. And thank you so much for our listeners for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio. We encourage you to tune in next time to learn more about the latest in Myeloma research and what it means for you. 